0: So what's up Pretty Thinkers, it's Yasmin.
1: Hey, it's Bella.
0: And welcome back to Pretty Thoughts. So I know it has been a while, but today we're going to do something a little different. On theme, we are going to be talking about race and culture, but not so on theme. We're going to be talking about race and culture culture through the anthropological lens um, and break down some of the major themes. We have found along the way in our research. Um, so, we're going to first start by talking a bit about our positionalities, what has led us to anthropology and our identities, discipline, et cetera, et cetera. So, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? You can go first. Yeah. Okay. So,. <laughs> a lot of you know I got my undergraduate degree in English Um, it wasn't until sort of like my junior year maybe going into my senior year of undergrad that I finally decided that I wanted to study anthropology Uh, but most of the time it has been English so I have pretty much been brought up on critical race theory if you want to call it that Black feminist theory, most of my undergraduate education has been focused on black studies in some capacity. So sort of led me to anthropology here. Studying race and racism or being introduced to this concept of race and racism in anthropology is what really got me interested in Anthro in the first place. Um, Other than that, I'm a black woman. So (laughs) I really do care about issues of black people and what we're going through. So other than that, I don't really know what else to add about my positionality. <laughs> if you want to go ahead, sure, Bella. Sure, yeah. No.
1: Um, so I got my undergraduate degree in anthropology with a concentration on archaeology from the University of California, San mm-hmm. Diego. Um, I started in anthropology at community college, mm-hmm. where I was focused on history at first for a little while, but I started to lean a little bit more towards anthropology, especially when I transferred um, to my four-year university, which is UCSD. Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of in, in shock in the way that the department and everything kind of still discussed anthropology and archaeology, you know, the big seminar classes had these you know broad themes that were discussed, but especially in archaeology, I, I just found some things that I wasn't a fan of in the field and I tried to really look for a university because I was still interested in continuing on in the subject of archaeology, but at a university that was, again, every university is different, and I feel like every one of them is saying they're trying their best. <laughs> right. But, but really, um, I, I found some people at this university that were really accepting of you know, what I wanted to do because I'm very interested in the way that like, we manage and curate archaeological collections And how these Mm -hmm. kinds of narratives that archaeologists who have not done like collaboration with indigenous communities, how that actually impacts like Mm -hmm. the care and the management and preservation of these collections and how that really um, just influences the way that, you know, younger scholars come to the field and talk about this. So that's why I came to this university because I was just really interested in like the collaborative efforts that some of our uh, colleagues and professors and the stance that they were having. So that's how I came to it. Um, and that that's really yeah, how I got to anthropology,
0: Just through oh, that. I love that. Yeah. Um, I guess I should note that we are both anthropology students yes. at the University of Illinois. I'm not going to tell you which University of Illinois, but we're at one of the <laughs> University of Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think one of my... One of the biggest reasons why I wanted to come and study here mm-hmm. was my advisor. Like, she's freaking awesome. Like, she's yeah. amazing. Um, I knew for a fact that I really wanted a black advisor. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, I'm like, if I could find a black woman for an advisor, like, that would be even perfect. And the fact that both of our research interests are just, like, so perfectly aligned. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Just everything aligned perfectly for me to be here. And I'm like, yeah, hey, I'm so excited and for you like, absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I really, yeah, for me right now, I'm, I'm still definitely trying to figure out what my research interests are. Mm-hmm. But in a grand scheme of things, black digital activism, the way black people imagine freer futures for themselves in online spaces, mm-hmm. the way we use and engage mm-hmm. with imagery and videos in online spaces to sort of define humanity for ourselves and what that looks like, and what futures without racism and police brutality and all this violence look like are big interests of mine. And I've so far, like, being here has made me really excited to dive deeper into that. So, yeah, yeah, that's awesome.
1: Here we are, and here we're doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, doing it.
0: we're doing it. So, I think as we have sort of talked about our positionalities here Mm -hmm. in the field of anthropology, we are going to now transition into some of the big names in anthropology. Maybe not some. Well, I guess it depends on who you ask, who these big names (laughs) in anthropology are,
1: because some people might... (laughs) there's probably going to be some disagreements on it exactly and as as the point of i think this podcast today Mm -hmm. good there there should there should be and we should be you know acknowledging these kinds of conversations and stuff that maybe they're happening but we're gonna have it again today and we're gonna talk more about it
0: exactly
1: so who are these big names that we're gonna be discussing um well one of the first ones (laughs) known as the father of anthropology (laughs) is Franz Boas.
0: Ah,
1: <laughs> um so I'll give a little quick background on, you know, Franz Boas and everything. So he was born in 1858 and he was a prominent German-American anthropologist. He he's referred to as the father of American anthropology. He his work they say has a profound influence on, you know, how it was how the field of anthropology was shaped. He was born in, I'm probably going to pronounce this incorrectly, I just want (laughs) to put it out there, um, Midden Westphalia, which is now Germany. He came from a Jewish family with a strong academic background. He studied physics, geography, and mathematics. He really began his career as a geographer, so he conducted fieldwork in the Baffin Island in the Canadian Arctic. His experiences there really sparked his interest in the diversity of human cultures and language. So he moved into anthropology, and he came to the United States in 1886, and he began teaching at Clark University in Massachusetts, where he kind of switched his focus from geography to anthropology, really specifically cultural anthropology. So some of the major contributions that Boaz is known for in the field of anthropology is pioneering the concept of cultural relativism, which is the idea that culture should be understood within their own historical social context, you know, without judgment. He did a lot of fieldwork amongst indigenous people, especially the Kwakutal of the northern coast. And so he really emphasizes the importance of empirical fieldwork and the collection of ethnographic data. He really tried to challenge prevailing ideas of race. And and we'll get into this more later (laughs) because did he? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, yeah, that's the question. He held different teaching positions like at Columbia. His students were, this is kind of funny, were known as Boasians. Isn't that a cute name (laughs) to be called? Uh, And basically, he just has this huge legacy within anthropology. As people saying, he really established anthropology within the United States. um, The rejection of racial hierarchy and his emphasis in cultural relativism. And he paved the way for the development of cultural anthropology and tried to contribute to a more holistic understanding of human societies. So that is kind of a brief background. We will be deconstructing quite a bit of that, but that is kind of a uh, watered-down Wikipedia <laughs> background of who Franz Boas was and kind of the the works that he did an anthropology.
0: Right. So next we are going to talk about Hurston, um, and then we'll travel back around to Du Bois. So Zora Neale Hurston is a writer or was a writer, folklorist, and anthropologist. Hurston was born on January 7th, 1891 in Solga. I'm also butchering names, <laughs> Alabama. <laughs> um, however, her family moved to Eatonville, Florida while she was still very young. Eatonville is a small town near Orlando, Florida, um, and it was the United States' <coughs> first incorporated Black Township, and which was established in 1887, which was very interesting for me to find out. I was like, oh, wow, I didn't mm. know that. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know that either. <laughs> I know, like, Florida actually has some <laughs> decent history. Wow, <laughs> we love it. <laughs> uh, but after the passing of her mother in 1904, Hurton, Hurston worked a series of routine jobs and struggled to finish school. She eventually found herself in Baltimore in 1917, and she was 26 years old when she actually decided to finish high school because she hadn't at the time. She ended up having to claim that she was 16 and was born in 1901 to get free public schooling, and she continued to present herself as 10 years younger along after this. So, and I remember hearing this, Damn. so for like the longest time, people didn't really know how old <laughs> Zora <laughs> Narson actually was because she would just say that she was 10 years younger yeah. than what she was, which is so funny. So she completed high school in 1918 and then attended Howard Prep School from 1918 to 1919. Here's a lot of dates. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> attended Howard University from 1919 to 1924. From 1925 to 1927, Hurston attended Bernard College, uh, where she studied anthropology under Franz Boas. During this time, she also did field work for him in Harlem. Mm-hmm. It was in 1927 that Hurston went to Florida to collect the black folklore that would eventually become Mules and Men, which is what we read in class, Mm -hmm. Um, but that did not get published until 1935, the same year she began her Ph.D. in anthropology at Columbia University. Throughout all of this, though, Zora is consistently writing and publishing plays, essays, novels, all the above and while Hurston gained some critical acclaim for her writing she died poor and was buried in an unmarked grave and seemingly forgotten it was 13 years before Alice Walker the author of The Color Purple (laughs) Mm -hmm. discovered and marked Hurston's grave and essentially revitalized Zora Neale Hurston's work and really gave Hurston the respect that she so well deserves um and something else that I found interesting, apparently Zora knew that she would die f- poor, so she wrote to Du Bois mm-hmm. <laughs> to try and get him to like help build a cemetery for black people to be remembered and taken care of after their deaths, despite like how well they were known, right. how much money they had. And Du Bois like, rejected the idea. So I was like, oh, wow. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, wow. I did not know that. Know th- oh, my gosh. So that was really interesting. Wow. Let's see. Ind- and then we are
1: going to move on to W.E.B. Du Bois. So to find the background, <laughs> as I suddenly lost it, here it is. Um, He was a writer, a teacher, an activist, and a sociologist. He was born in Great Barrington, Massachusetts on February twenty third, 1868. He was the first in his extended family to go to high school, and he began writing articles for papers as early as 1883. He first attended Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee, and after he graduated, he attended Harvard University in 1888. However, he began working towards his Ph.D. while at the University of Berlin in 1892, but his funding ran out before he could even earn his degree. Mm -hmm. Um, And he eventually received one from Harvard, becoming the first African-American to do so. And to extend on some of his beliefs, Du Bois felt that black Americans should embrace their African heritage while they worked and lived in the United States. His position challenged black scholars like Booker T. Washington, who believed that black folks in the South should compromise their basic, in exchange for education and legal justice. He also opposed the ideas that black Americans should integrate within white society, and his idea was made po- or this idea was made popular by abolitionist Frederick Douglass. And he was, and Du Bois was also very active in the Pan-Africanism movement, which was essentially advocates for the political union of all of the indigenous habitants of Africa. Mm.
0: Something that, (laughs) and maybe one day, this could be a podcast episode, (laughs) but if you don't know the beef, and I don't even want to call it the beef, beef? but (laughs) if you don't know the beef that Du Bois and Booker T. Washington Washington. Mm -hmm. had between each other, I Oh, I please just like go Google it. One <laughs> of the greatest beefs in history. I love it. I love it. I love it.
1: That's amazing. There, there, there's some beef. And actually, we will probably talk about <laughs> another writer at the time Ooh. who wasn't necessarily was trying to play the middle ground between actually Du Bois and Washington. So yeah, we'll we'll get into that actually right now. So um, something that you know we've been talking about a while now is who was writing these kinds of papers, articles, having these conversations during this time period, you know, back in the late 1800s, you know, early, you know, 20th century, like who who's having these kinds of conversations and why are, you know, some people able to, I don't want to say like transcend through time, but mm. kind of in a way like how, how Boaz is still in conversation today, Du Bois is, but how there are some authors who were also writing similar topics having similar conversations who, who just haven't been able to necessarily within like the larger grand scale of anthropology mm-hmm. have these have their works to kind of be recognized at the same level that boas and stuff was so one of the first people that i wanted to talk about was uh kelly miller he was born in 1863 and he was a mathematician sociologist essayist and a newspaper columnist Mm -hmm. he was the son to kelly jr who was a freed black man and his mother elizabeth she was formerly enslaved and he was a pioneering figure in academia and he advocated for higher education for african americans and he really did a lot of stuff within you know mathematics and sociology he faced a lot of racial prejudice and he was the first african american to attend john hopkins university and this is where he studied mathematics uh, he later taught at Howard University and he became the first African American to attend the Mathematics Association in America And kind of moving like beyond what he just did in mathematics he was also known for his work in you know sociology so he focused a lot on issues related to race education and social mm-hmm. inequality and so he actually would use his platform as a newspaper columnist to address civil rights and social justice causes and he really emphasized, the importance of education and equal opportunities for Mm African-Americans. And so this is kind of where he holds this unique position in like the race culture debate, because it's like he didn't strictly align himself with like viewpoints like, you know, Du Bois, who advocated for immediate civil rights and social equality. But he also didn't entirely support like Washington's approach for, you know, gradual procession through vocational education and, you know, economic Mm self-reliance. So instead he kind of sought this middle ground. So he acknowledged the importance of education and self-improvement that was advocated by Washington. But he then recognized the significance of the intellectual advancements, you know, and social equality, which was championed by Du Bois. So his stance really centered on the belief of this, you know, comprehensive education Mm -hmm. system. He emphasized the needs for African-Americans to be equipped with both practical skills and intellectual knowledge and you know to be able to achieve success and equal opportunities you know within society and so there's another person who's also kind of having similar conversations at Mm -hmm. the same time and that was robert e park so kind of kind of talk about robert ezra park so he was an american urban sociologist and he was again like everyone that we're talking about has like the title like the most influential you <laughs> right. know but, like with boaz the father so influ- and i just find that kind of funny at the time so mm. he was a pioneer as they say in you know the field of sociology and he was really active in you know the discipline rooted in study of human behavior so he made significant contributions to the study of urban communities race relations and all of this was developed on like empirically grounded research observations. Uh, So, he did a lot of participation in the field of criminology, which is kind of interesting. So, Mm -hmm. from 1905 to 1914, he worked with Booker T. Washington at Tuskegee Tuskegee (laughs) (laughs) Institute, and then he taught at the University of Chicago from 1914 Mm -hmm. to 1933, where he played a lead role in developing the Chicago School for Sociology. Mm -hmm. So, he came out of Chicago what they called, or what this article referred to it as, mainstream Midwest society. Oh, wow. Um, right? And so this is kind of where this conversation, at least when I was reading about this insider versus, like, outsider debate, when we were talking about how, you know, Boaz has been able to maybe, like, transcend mm-hmm. through time and space, we're talking about, you know, Boaz hailing from Germany, being of Jewish descent, he held an outsider view of, like, this mainstream, american ideology right right so um which is interesting to kind of like put like robert e park and boaz they're saying kind of similar things but Mm -hmm. just like talking how it didn't necessarily or at least in park's view like how it didn't make it further out of this midwest you know mainstream chicago kind of theory and discussion where Mm -hmm. you have boaz who is able to kind of potentially use his status as i'm i'm an immigrant in this country i have faced my own prejudices and i i'm potentially curious if that really is a reason how he was able to you know push and have these conversations on like a broader scale and why people are still conversing today because i had never heard of like robert e park before this or kelly miller in In these kinds of debates and these conversations, you know, mm. so it's kind of like how how is their positionality you know affecting the way that we have continued to consume and talk about these conversations that were happening in the past and, and how are we bringing it to today because even like Hurston, you know, mm-hmm. in like, like talking about how she wasn't necessarily like hailed during her time as right. this amazing writer that she is today,
0: right. And Herson is, she's such, I don't want to call her like a case, but it's like, (laughs) her story story is so interesting to me because, like, my introduction to Mm Herson has always been like this big name of the Harlem Renaissance, like, and she was, she was being rewarded for her writings and her stories, like, their eyes were watching God is big and most people well, if, like if you ask most people like what what do you know a person they would probably mention that like <laughs> like I even grew up watching the movie their eyes were watching God with Halle Berry and I don't even remember the other guy's name but like her story is such an interesting one because she went from somebody who was again so well known for her writings and words mm-hmm. especially in black spaces mm-hmm. to then sort of see her try to uh Again, like, the word transcend is coming to mind. Right. But like, <laughs> bring, like, bring some of her writing skills to anthropology. Yeah. And how disregarded she was. Like, people are like, absolutely not, girl. Don't. <laughs> do not write the way that you want to write. Don't tell the stories that you want to tell. In a way, like, this is not how we do ethnography. This is not how we do anthropological research mm-hmm. at all. So, it was really, it was frustrating, like especially when we read *Mules of Men* because it was what the foreword yeah. that Boaz had wrote, and mm-hmm. in it he's like praising Kirsten as like, oh yeah, her her writing just really gave us this inside scoop basically <laughs> of these black people and black folklore. It's like, but sir, weren't you just talking trash about her? <laughs> and, and her writing, it's it's kind of scary it maybe not scary but no i i get what yeah. you yeah like i don't know it was really frustrating like like that it.
1: was one of his students and to like right. have someone you know come after yeah it's just kind of disheartening in like the field that that was something that was occurring
0: right and i like often wonder like um how zora felt at the time mm-hmm. But then, when I really think about her ideologies and who she was as a person, like, and we will probably even discuss this a little more later, that, and, like, what, what do we lose when we are trying to, like, really follow our passions here? Like, she is a prime example of this. Like, she did not care what people thought about her yeah. or her writing styles. like. She was very open about that. She's mm-hmm. like, I'm going against the grain. <laughs> I'm going to tell the stories I want to tell right. and how I want to tell them. And y'all need to li- either like that or not. Like, it does not matter to me. I'm going to do what I want to do. And, like, mo- I'm sure most black anthropologists will tell you today that, like, Zora Neale Hurston is the reason that a lot of us are here and even consider anthropology a possibility. I know I did. I was very inspired by her work and being reintroduced to her as mm-hmm. an anthropologist in a course I took about slave narratives of all places like I was like wow maybe and I was just like getting introduced to anthropology at that time I'm like wow maybe anthropology is the space for me like yeah. I can still be creative and have an open mind and do ethnography and yeah. tell stories and all these things that were just like really really amazing so to learn that her work which is now like integral mm-hmm. for ethnography probably <laughs> today yeah. to learn that at one point it was not that, but then to also learn and again, we'll <laughs> it's like, we'll get into this I later, know, we'll get into later it later <laughs> on. But like to then learn that it really wasn't even, it wasn't an anthropologist. Right. And it wasn't anybody white. It was a black woman, mm-hmm. a black literary icon herself who was also inspired by Zora's work that said she deserves to be remembered. hmm. In a way that, like, really gives her her flowers. Yeah. And her work deserves to be remembered. And I am going to do that. I'm going to take the time to, like, bring Zorna Hurston back to the forefront where she deserves to be. Right. Because you can't, I don't know, you just can't, like, <laughs> 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 it's like you, it was just such great work that was about to be forgotten. And yeah. that, ugh. That's just scary in itself, but like I said, we can we can <laughs> talk about that later on.
1: <laughs> we have we have so much well more to say do, on that. We really do. Don't worry. Um, so I guess you know that we've talked about positionality and kind of given a background of some of the. I feel I feel like I'm talking about sports right now and I say <laughs> like the major <laughs> players at the time, the major players. But also want to highlight that they're I'm sure. There can't be only these, you know, few people having these big discussions. But, you know, we just wanted to mention kind of some of the, oh, I still hate, the like, I I don't mean to call, I mean, Boaz was important in anthropology Mm -hmm. and talking about these things um, at the time. So it's important to, you know, still kind of recognize who, like, where these narratives started, particularly, you know, like, with Boaz and everything. But. We still have some some issues when dealing, you know, with Boaz. he He did try to deconstruct race in that races some weren't superior than others. so he kind of rejected this racial determinism. He really took issue, you know, with that prevailing idea, which really claimed that certain racial groups were inherently superior or inferior. Mm-hmm. So again, he really talks that this approach lacks empirical evidence. And this is where we're going to kind of also try to transition a little bit into talking about some of that evidence. But real quick before, it's that, you know, he didn't necessarily believe in racial equality. And so he didn't see that those ideas would like totally transcend within Western society. So I guess in kind of wanting to talk about that empirical evidence and everything... I really wanted to kind of get on how anthropologists today kind of deal mm-hmm. with the concept and everything about race. Right. So I have an article that talks about I- the title is a qualitative analysis of how anthropologists interpret the race construct. Mm. So this study came out of it's really interesting. The people who are writing it are not anthropologists mm. themselves. They deal with genomics, race. They're in bioethics, Department of Pediatrics, cancer research. So this is more coming at, like, the genetic side of yeah, it. Oh, wow. And right? And so they did a study, or they conducted an analysis in 2012 where they wanted to kind of figure out how anthropologists themselves are relating to the concept of race and how they're talking about it and studying it. So they sent out... Um, An email. So what they they did at first is they actually generated a database of yeah. forty one thousand anthropologists. Ooh. So they, it, it sounds interesting how they did it. So they used a software to digitally capture people's email addresses mm-hmm. who were members or attended pages of the AAA, the American Anthropological Association, mm-hmm. their website between October fifth and October twelfth. And so then they sent an email invitation asking people to participate in the survey. Mm-hmm. Uh, 3,000 people responded. And from that, a sample of like 2,000 of these texts they, they took from the people. And about 1,000 of them were professional respondents who were composed of both like academics as well as applied anthropologists. But the rest of that was made up of students and trainees who were also frequenting this website. And so what they really did is they wanted to ask some questions, and their questions were really about, um, let me find the questionnaire. So they had these statements that were really common because they just kind of wanted to ask people in all of these sub-disciplines because they asked linguistic, anthropologists, archaeologists, sociocultural, biophysical, and so they had the six most common statements and then they broke it down into categories. So the six most common statements were race doesn't exist. No races exist or ever did. Race mm. has no biological basis. Race is biologically meaningless. Race has no genetic basis. And that race has no biological influence on health. Mm. So those were the six main ones. And th- reading the responses and how people did it, they broke it up into three different kind of uh, Well, they call it a broad spectrum, illuminating how anthropologists interpret, like, race construct. And Mm -hmm. then they put the people who answered into these little categories. So the first category they have is called the constructors. And basically their responses fit in the category that race is a social construct and a historical artifact, which, when conceptualized, is not a scientifically reliable measure of human genetic variation. Then we have the shifters. Who, on top of that, they also see race as a political tool, Mm. as a lived social reality, as a self ascribed identity maker, and the dynamic ideology that has an impact as institutional, structural, and cultural racism. Mm. And then we have the reconcilers, who, you know, see all of that, too. um, But they also have conceptions of race are informed by and informed biology, you know, such as a deployment by society as phenotypic markers to differentiate and classify socially defined races or the embodied existence of health disparities among socially defined races mm. now that was a lot that yeah. I, I just threw out there <laughs> <That> was, <laughs> it definitely was. but so tho- those are kind of it and this was uh, done in 2012 and they wrote this article in 2017 mm. and it's interesting to read all of the kind of ways that anthropology as a whole talk about race as a construct, but I also did want to note that in the survey, the people who responded, 735 of them identified as white, Mm -hmm. 170 identified as other, Mm -hmm. 26 identified as black or African American, 18 as American Indian or Alaskan Native, and 18 as Asian. So we do see that there is um, a disparity in the people who are responding also they sent the email out to 41,000 people right. oh. <laughs> so which is kind of great that's a, like that's a that's a huge email chain i just want to put that out there like my brain is still like that's 41,000 but okay um but i think this brings up some important discussions that you were speaking about earlier about the kind of like biological discussion of race you know racist mm-hmm. biology what came first race or racism mm-hmm.
0: Thinking uh, way back to Mm. my first introduction to race and racism in anthropology, (laughs) and I won't say that was, like, a big, well, kind of a big question, like, what came first, race or racism? I feel like Ibram X. Kendi even talks about this in his book, um, How to Be Anti-Racist, but, (laughs) yeah, that's, that's. A big questioner, like, is it people will automatically assume that because race has is so prevalent in America, especially like we're like, yeah, race came first and then racism second. But honestly, no. Like most things, race is a social construct. Mm -hmm. Racism definitely came first. Race just came afterwards to sort of justify racism. So they're like, up. We need to find bio. (laughs) We need to define certain things biologically. Mm -hmm. Okay. Gonna, we're going to we're going to run tests to support and, right to support to support the racism the y- fact that yeah mm. we want to colonize and we want to uh, enslave folks like we that's what we're doing that, that's what we're doing we're going to find reasons to discriminate against these people and it's a wild concept to think about like re- it, it really is, is. <laughs> like <laughs> I, can't, oh. I don't know it's just like most like most things In this discipline, I'm frustrated. I'm I'm looking (laughs) at you right now. I see. I see the frustration. It's frustrating. You're like, So you mean to tell me every single thing that has ever impacted my life? I don't know. Like, it just is a construct. And I think it was really, like, mainly frustrating about it because you will hear people say, oh, race is a construct. We live in a post-racial society, so none of this stuff matters. It's like, no race is not biology but it definitely affects mm-hmm. it it affects biology though it, it does. does um i'm losing my train of thought here but <laughs> yeah it definitely affects biology like there is a reason that people are often like oh black people are not victims of not not victims of hypertension, but a lot of, there's a reason why a lot of black people do have hypertension, yeah, like when you think about the fact a lot of us live in low income neighborhoods that are also food deserts, which basically means that there is no real grocery store in close proximity to us, like there's a reason why a lot of us in those same neighborhoods don't um. Like go to schools that are underfunded or live in neighborhoods that are over-policed, a lot of these things can be attributed to hypertension. And so when you look at black people, it's not like, oh, black people are inherently going to, like, are inherently, what's the word I'm looking for here? I don't even know.
1: I know what you're talking about. I I I know what you mean.
0: (laughs) It's not that black people are inherently predisposed, I guess, Mm -hmm. to hypertension or that they're always going to have high blood pressure but the things there's just so many other factors outside that attribute to that and that cause these disproportionate rates in the same way that people can say oh well black people are being disproportionately killed by police officers or black people are disproportionately being arrested or disproportionately whatever right Mm -hmm. it's because oh maybe because our neighborhoods are over policed Um, Maybe because, again, our schools do not have the funding to give students the proper education or give them access to tutors Mm -hmm. and all these other things. Like, yeah, a lot of these students come from low-income households whose parents have to work multiple jobs. And so that child has to then go home and help, like, be another parent or also have to pick up a job themselves. Like, people are not talking about all the other things surrounding what – makes racism racism or what makes white supremacy white supremacy or what makes race biology even though it is not biology like yeah it's just it's frustrating and like I'm gonna quote Kendi again people are essentially what he says is that people focus on the symptoms Mm -hmm. of racism or white supremacy and not like the actual root cause like when we take medicine we're taking medicine to help with the root cause of it. Like, you don't take a cough drop, though. Yeah. Like, you don't just take a cough drop and be like, oh, hopefully that's going to cure my cold. Like, no, it's going to help soothe your throat Mm -hmm. because that's what that is. But you need to, like, take some, like, antibacterial medicine or something like (laughs) that to, like, help you (laughs) with your cold. Right. In the same way, you don't just throw a Band-Aid over, like, a a gaping wound. Right. you need to go to the hospital and get stitches to properly heal. Like, you're only focusing on, like, the small... I won't say minuscule things because they matter, but, right. yeah, a lot of people tend to only focus on the symptoms and not, like, the bigger impacts. So that's why things like, oh, I'm I'm colorblind, or I'm <laughs> not colorblind, <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> col- well, colorblind racism is a thing. That's what I'm saying.
1: <laughs> and that's why it matters when yeah. people say that, those kinds of things, right? Because I feel like it's like, oh, you know, they don't want to, It's it's because it's like, they're not engaging. They also don't have those kinds of experiences and everything. Mm-hmm. So they're like, uh, I just don't see color. But that's totally, again, you said it's negating what other people like the lived experiences yeah. that people go through and like the history and just everything in society that has happened and that continues
0: to happen. Right. You know, it. it yeah. And I think there's one thing I can say that I do like about anthropology wow i'm just kidding i can't believe i'm saying that (laughs) but context does matter yeah and i can say that a lot of anthropologists for the most part as Mm -hmm. far as i can tell are interested in that context right are interested in the context that moves our society and that explains cultural practices Mm -hmm. that explains things like white supremacy and american racism like they are interested in their context, and that was something that I feel drew me to anthropology. Yeah, but yeah, I don't know. This is I don't know this that question of race or racism. What came first? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh, we were even talking before we mm-hmm. had started recording about I, how I had um where well, I was reading Native Son by um, James Baldwin think the book was called notes of a native son yeah the book is called notes of a native son and the very last essay he has is titled stranger in the village where he goes to this village in switzerland to like write and just be a peace and he had gone to the village before but when he's writing this essay he had to come back after after a while and he hadn't expected that and i'm not <laughs> I'm not going to read the passage because it's a very long one, and I will probably lose everybody. <laughs> so I'm not going to do that. Um, but there is a part that I do want to read specifically, like where he talks about how he said that he mentioned, like in the, in, in the essay he earlier, in, earlier in the essay, goodness mm-hmm. gracious, <laughs> he mentions how he claimed he was a stranger still today in the village or today at that time which is like in the 1950s when he first arrived in the summer but that wasn't quite true now um he says that the villagers sort of wondered less about the texture of his hair than they did and now wonder rather more about me like those are his words um he talks about there are the children who make Those delightful, hilarious, sometimes astonishingly grave overtures of friendship in the unpredictable fashion of children. Other children have been taught that the devil is a black man. Scream in genuine, who have been taught that the devil is a black man, scream in genuine anguish as I approach. Some of the older women never pass without a friendly greeting, never pass indeed. If it seems that they will be able to engage me in conversation. Other women look down or look away or rather contemptuously smirk. Some of the men drink with me and suggest that I learn how to ski partly, I gather, because they cannot imagine what I would look like on skis and want to know if I am married and ask questions about my métier. But some of the men have accused Lesel Negre behind my back of stealing wood, and there is already in the eyes of some of them that peculiar intent, paranoic malevolence, which one sometimes surprises in the eye of American white men when out walking with their Sunday girl, they see a Negro male approach. And then right after that, he says, There is a dreadful abyss between the streets of this village and the streets of the city in which I was born, between the children who shout nigger today and those who shout nigger yesterday. The abyss is experienced, the American experience, experience. The syllable hurled behind me today expresses above all wonder. I am a stranger here, but I am not a stranger in America. And the same syllable writing on the American air expresses the war my presence has occasioned in the American soul. Um, I <laughs> it's like, what do you say after? Yeah. like, it's <laughs> like what do you say after that? Um, this This passage just stood out to me because I'm reading this for another assignment. But mm-hmm. this idea that Sort of imagines this village in Switzerland at that time, one where they have had little interaction Mm -hmm. with black people or black or a black man. And here he is still seeing sort of this like undercurrent, maybe not undercurrent, undertone. I don't know. (laughs) Like he's still getting this sense of racism, right? Like very innocent in some ways and not fully realized, but. People do acknowledge him as different and some people are in fact treating him differently. Mm-hmm. He talks about the way like somewhere earlier in the passage or in, in the essay, he talks about the way people will just stop to touch his hand to see if his blackness will rub off or people will stop to touch his hair. Someone even <laughs> told him he should grow his hair out and make a coat out of cotton or like that was like something he sort of like imagined, I guess, that people were probably thinking <laughs> thinking about him as he was sitting there. And it was just very interesting, like, here. Like, you really do see, like, the beginnings of racism. He yeah. sort of imagines. <laughs> I see, I, like, I sort of relate the way um, Baldwin is sort of talking about racism here. Or, like, these beginnings of racism. In mm-hmm. the same way, a lot of anthropologists will look at indigenous groups and be like, these are primitive folks. Yep. And they're stuck in time. Yep. Like, and I don't know, it was just kind of mind-blowing to me because it's like, wow here he's sort of experiencing these people quote unquote stuck in time like the beginnings of racism like he even says for this village brings home to me this fact that there was a day and not really a very distant day when Americans were scarcely Americans at all but discontented Europeans facing a great unconquered continent and strolling saying to a marketplace and seeing black men for the first time the shock the spectacle afforded is suggested surely by the promptness with which they decided that these black men were not really men the cattle and it's like if you've never seen black people at all like your first thought <laughs> it's like hmm, <laughs> how can i <laughs> how can i commodify you like how yeah. can i exploit you and how can i get you to do my bidding um and yeah it was just really interesting to like for Baldwin I keep on to call him Du Bois <laughs> but <laughs> it's very interesting for Baldwin or like me reading Baldwin here mm-hmm. and seeing like okay well America at that time for him was very current contemporary racism right. and then this village in Switzerland is one where racism isn't really a concept well maybe not racism but race isn't inherently a con- isn't necessarily mm-hmm. a concept and yet they are still, still sort of exhibiting like yeah. that racist behavior and it's very very similar and just to see how it has developed and evolved was was very interesting for me like reading that and seeing his comparisons
1: yeah, yeah. it kind of it kind of sounds like you know it's the two sides of a coin mm-hmm. like it still exists you know this kind of racism even if like on different levels mm-hmm. what can like what race is constructed at a society at a time like right. the racism still persists like the coin is still there yeah. it's just two different kind of sides of it you have you know this kind of imagined village and then you have it in like america mm. so it's like it's it's still there it's just on like different like levels right and it's interesting to kind of think about
0: and talk about that mm. James Baldwin. <laughs> James Baldwin, everybody. Ooh, uh, ooh. Okay, so. <sighs> My, what The section that I'm most excited about. I don't know if Here you're so excited Here about it. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to transition into decolonizing anthropology. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> this has been, wow, a topic that in this class specifically that we have all sort of. Day one. Yeah, day one day we one. started social theory talking about decolonizing anthropology. Yeah. And it's sort of been something that we've sometimes returned to some weeks and other weeks not, but this ongoing question of what does decolonizing anthropology look like? Mm-hmm. What is decolonizing? What do we do? Where are we going? All all the questions. All the questions all <laughs> at once. Literally all <laughs> the questions. Um so the week that we presented on race and culture, mm-hmm. we introduced this quote by Audre Lorde. And everybody knows, like, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Mm-hmm. But we're going to give that more context. The whole quote. We are going to give you all the all quotes. All the quote, all the context. Yeah. All the quote, all the context in its entirety. So, Audre Lorde says, Those of us who stand outside the circle of the society's definition of acceptable women, those of us who have been forged in the crucibles of difference, Those of us who are poor, who are lesbians, who are black, who are older, know that survival is not an academic skill. It is learning how to take our differences and make them strengths. For the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. And this fact is only threatening to those women who still define the master's house as their only source of support. <laughs> Hearing the whole quote though,
1: and not just like the master's tools, yeah. like that, it's, it's so powerful.
0: It hits in my chest like that, mm-hmm. especially that last, the last line. line. And this fact is only threatening to those women who still define the master's house as their only source of support. Oh and gosh. that can be extended to really all fields, all kinds mm-hmm. of disciplines, even oof, anything. Literally anything. Really anything. And so, to really give this quote context, <laughs> it is taken out of context a lot um audrey lord was asked to speak at the new york university institute for the humanities conference that they were having that year i don't remember what year this was written but audrey lord was under the assumption that she would be going (laughs) to speak on papers that discussed race age sexuality and class when she got there though like Was she the only person of color who was asked to speak? Or, like, there was just this, like, one panel, basically, for people of color and feminist lesbians to sort of speak on their experiences and talk about all of these intersections. Mm -hmm. And, but they're really, again, I think Audre Lorde was probably one of the only, yeah, black lesbian feminists to, like, be invited to speak. And then, like, she also noted that there were not women from like other countries yeah. outside of the U.S. to come and speak either. And so she was really questioning the women of this conference. Like, how can we say that we are about feminism and we want equality for all and we are fighting for these things and we care about intersectionality as a race, age, sexuality, class, all of this, right? But you are only opening this conference to, <laughs> you're only inviting certain n- kinds of people And then the one or the couple people that you do invite, like, we're the tokens, and we're expected to hold these conversations and have them and talk about race Mm -hmm. and talk about these um, intersections. And so she was really having them question, like, we can't say that we want to dismantle this master's house. In this case, we can't say that we want to dismantle patriarchy and not talk about all the intersections and not talk about the ways that we still do play into the master's house by using his tools. Um and it was just I know I keep saying interesting, but like (laughs) I know I keep using the word interesting, but okay, we'll switch it up. We're gonna say intriguing. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. We're gonna switch it up a bit. Mm Uh it this this quote just it was a hit in class, we'll say (laughs) it was it was a hit in class because again, this quote you often only see the master's tools whenever dismantle the master's house and they don't have the rest before or after that's all you see and so it just brought into question for me like how are we as anthropologists (laughs) using the master's tools to gain i guess to sort of like quote unquote be him at his own game Mm -hmm. right again we can go back to this question of positionality yeah like sure as a black woman I can, in my college application essays, in my fellowship applications, all of them, that are so focused on diversity, equity, inclusion, DEI, I can be like, yeah, as a black woman who's interested in studying race, as a poor, low-income, blah, 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 the whole nine yards, just list all of my marginalized identities, yeah, I can say all that and use that, okay, mm-hmm. as an opportunity to, like, work my way up with this thought and idea in mind, like, yeah, I'm here, I'm carving my way out, or trying to make a seat at the table Mm -hmm. so that I can then make way for other people. But, and I do not really, I don't know. It's something I struggle with, because, like, okay, I'm doing all this, right? right? I'm here now. I'm really interested in black liberation movements. And, again, in the way people have used these moments in time Mm-hmm. viral instances of anti-blackness and I'm like I'm here to talk about black joy I'm here to talk about how these videos and pictures harm people how they're being used and I want to give voice to black people but I'm still doing all of that with like in like within the context of our discipline as we sort of discussed like I'm still sort of boxed in like right. I can count on my fingers and toes how many times I've been like during interviews when I was first like looking at grad schools, how often I heard people saying, yeah, your research topic is really important right now. Like, it's it's basically a hit. Like, everybody wants to, everybody's looking, especially you as a black woman. Like, I heard that so many times. And it was, it's like, on one hand, I'm saying, oh, well, that's great. Sure, like, I get to be in a space. But yeah. like, when you really sit to think about it, it's like, okay, well, what happens when I'm not, right. when this topic isn't popular anymore or it's not important? anymore Mm -hmm. or people don't deem it important where am I now Right. like sure I've used the masters tools I've worked my way up I've quote unquote picked myself up by my bootstraps to temporarily be him at his own game by Mm getting myself in these spaces that I probably wouldn't originally be in but like, is that really bringing the change that I'm seeking to bring if other people are still going to be forced to climb up that same ladder Mm -hmm. no matter like how much of a path I have carved out for other people. Like the path is still hard, the road is still long and winding. It's still not gonna be like a straight up ladder for yeah. other people who eventually come behind me. So, ugh. <laughs> 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 it's like, yeah, it's it just has it, it's made me think a lot. Because sorry for going on a tangent here. <laughs> sorry for going on because t- I could talk about this all day it's but an important
1: tangent yeah
0: <laughs> it's relevant <laughs> <laughs> yeah i like i could talk about this all day because like even in class like we were sitting there talking about um like what does decolonized anthropology look like like do, is it just making more space mm-hmm. to sort of amplify voices of the voices of people who are from other countries who because anthropology is a very we say western like discipline but it's mm-hmm. very American <laughs> very, very much so <laughs> it's a very American discipline and so it's American centered
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and then of course like the rest of the West sort of finds its way there but it's like okay well do we call in people do we amplify the voices of people from other countries are we just amplifying people from other races mm-hmm. or marginalized genders and sexualities disabilities right? Um, or is this like are we completely tearing down anthropology like all together are we trying to rebuild anthropology mm-hmm. and like what what <laughs> what does that look like and that was a, a big question yeah. that we had in yeah. class I don't
1: know. no exactly because i think when when we want to talk about you know tearing down anthropology or or starting anew mm-hmm. The conversations that we're having right now, like race and culture and anthropology, and we're citing these people, like we're citing Boaz, okay, Mm -hmm, mm because that's something that was brought up in the syllabus, father of anthropology, Mm -hmm. you know, so if we're talking about dismantling anthropology as a practice, does that mean that we don't talk about Boaz anymore? Mm. Do we not talk about um or do we not cite him i think something that's really interesting is like in talking about these kinds of like dismantling is also like citational practices like if we go and look through our works and stuff how many people uh are we gonna have to take out to you know have these conversations but like in the other turn it's like we can flip it and we don't necessarily always have to like talk about boaz like we can transition and talk about Also, these other people who are having similar conversations, maybe their narratives just never got as large Mm -hmm. as, like, let's say, Boaz did. But um, it's like we can, you know, have these kinds of opportunities. But at the same time, you know, it's it's a very hard question. You know, there's like there's no answer to it, (laughs) and we just we just keep having kind of like the same conversation like over again. But it's still doing something. Like Mm -hmm. we're still trying to. I feel like as actively as we can within this master's house like within the institution right. that we're in um do this but then that also I think brings up an important topic of what happens when we truly go against the canon against the grain mm-hmm. and against the institution that right. you know we're in you know like what what kind of things
0: talk about like happens you know right yeah yeah i think even along with that question too like because like in talking about race and culture and like who's doing like the the colonizing Mm -hmm. work anyway (laughs) right like it's usually people of color it's usually the people who are on the margins Mm -hmm. trying to amplify the voices of those who are on the margins with them and You've you've seen that. You've seen that mm-hmm. here with the decolonizing generation with yep. just decolonizing work in any in any capacity, right? It's usually people of color who are leading these movements. And it should not solely no. be them, right? right? And so when we get into these questions about like what's canon and who we should cite, where we should start mm-hmm. <laughs> even, like and I say this with so much love and respect <laughs> <laughs> especially in academic spaces yeah. it really upsets me when people like okay well, where where do we start what do we do mm-hmm. who do we reach out to and it's like well maybe if you picked up a book like picked up a book open it read it not a facebook article right not a <laughs> facebook article uh, because it like especially in these academic spaces because it's, it are people we are talking to who have the resources mm-hmm. they are they have access to all the journals Been they the go too. to all the conferences mm-hmm. Like, they, some of these people are literally in their department. Yeah. And you're still asking what we should be doing. Where do we start? They, like, people of color have already done the work. Mm-hmm. And it's because we have sort of been forced. Like, people on the margins have sort of been forced to think outside of that box. Yeah, The whole, like, the the basis for decolonizing, anthropology, really. Decolonizing work, anything, right? Abolitionist work. All of it is the beginning of that is being able to imagine like you have to be able Mm -hmm. to imagine a world that does not have these things yeah a world that sort of that is free from racism sexism homophobia um ableism ageism classism like a world free from that you have to be able to imagine that to even begin wondering and questioning and creating the tools to get to that to that place right and so again like the people on the margins have already been doing this work and that's why like (laughs) movements like hashtag cite black women which was spearheaded by anthropologists Mm -hmm. and other black feminist scholars to again cite black women and have these citational practices not just be oh i'm like just briefly mentioning Mm -hmm. you here and putting you in my um biography um Bibliography. bibliography there <laughs> we go <laughs> <laughs> to put you by bibliography like for in the sake in right to like, like
1: everyone else I'm already citing Really?
0: Yeah. like aside from just doing that but like actually centering some of these works and giving these people the space to it, like yeah. give them the scholarly that <laughs> they deserve right like, like yeah <laughs> like they are scholars <laughs> they're doing the work and their work should not be treated other than that and so it does go back mm-hmm. to this question like what we consider yeah canon And what we, not even just, like, who we consider canon, as in, like, the people we are reading and who we should Mm -hmm. constantly go back to, but, like, what anthropological research actually looks like. Yeah. What is anthropology? Well, maybe not what is anthropology, but, like, what does that research look like? What does it mean to be an anthropologist Mm -hmm. and do anthropological work? Right. And you'll see time and time again, like, uh, like, how else do you really explain this? But, like, I think for me, and I... uh, I guess it goes both back with, like, both of these questions, right? To disrupt canon mm-hmm. as a scholar of color. I am expected to learn and know and deep, like, learn and know all the canon. Know all of the, yeah. the fathers of anthropology, like, the big names. And prove that I know that to other people in order to then, like, engage in, like, yeah. the, oh, the cute decolonizing work and to even be able to disrupt that work. Mm -hmm. I have to prove to people that I fully understand it. And I don't know. It's just, it's interesting. And like, on one hand, I understand it. I understand that because you can't engage in decolonizing work and you don't understand what you're trying to (laughs) decolonize, right? Like, you have to be able to understand it. So, I'm all for that. But a lot of the times, I feel like when people are saying, oh, you need to know canon, like, you need to, like, if you don't learn canon, basically, or do research in a way that I consider mm-hmm. like anthropological then research, you then you're not a real scholar, yeah. and I don't know that 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 is very frustrating. Yeah, like because just because I'm not doing work in a way that you perceive me to be, mm-hmm. just because I'm taking a more interdisciplinary approach, doesn't mean that like it's not scholarly. Yeah, because in the same way that I'm expected to learn all these people, why don't you know more about a Hurston? Why aren't you reading an out? Well, that's more English literature. but (laughs) Like, why don't you know who Angela Davis is or a Baldwin Mm -hmm. or Du Bois or Frederick Douglass, a Booker T. Washington, Carter G. Woodson? Like, why aren't you able to name all these people who have like further like black intellectual law. and I'm only naming black people like again I'm talking to myself too because there are other scholars outside of like the black sphere that I also don't know about but like it's just those questions that we all have to ask ourselves too yeah. but for like the people the main like the ones who are the big names in anthropology like they probably couldn't name half those people or even tell mm-hmm. you like what their basic <laughs> ideologies are and it's it's just very it's interesting frustrating thing like when we get to that question too of like what are we risking then when yeah. we go against that grain right. to say I'm going to follow my passions very similar to what Zora Neale Hurston talked about mm-hmm. to follow my passions to tell the stories of my people in the way that I know is going to do them justice Right in a way that is going to be authentic not only to myself but to my culture and to them she got so much flack for that yeah. like <laughs> literally like nobody they, again like she got so much flack for that from her advisor it literally her own the her advisor. own <laughs> advisor her own advisor and she was only appreciated in black spaces for the most part and it's like well if people of color are only appreciating other people of color and that appreciation is not extending outside of that mm-hmm. only in like small typ- like only in small cases where you've probably seen that happen then what are we doing? Yeah. Like, what are we doing? Are we as progressive as we say we are?
1: <laughs> that's, <laughs> that is a, that is such a good question. And that's something that, you know, coming from archaeology, mm. we talk about a lot. Yeah. Um, because I try very, very hard because I work and I'm trying to work in collaboration with indigenous communities yeah. so I'm coming into archaeology not as like an indigenous person right. I'm Mexican American and so this is something that in interacting in these spheres that you know I am doing my best to continue to engage with mm-hmm. thoughts and worldviews that aren't of my own right. um, and s- especially in archaeology you know I feel like a lot of faculty not necessarily here but just like in general continue right. to engage with an older narrative of archaeology. Mm. Sometimes it is felt that I've like as this younger generation are literally trying to teach mm. our newer or older faculty right. who still have issues and have said that they don't understand prone you know, so in these yeah, kinds of conversations Um, So I feel like sometimes it it gets very hard, but in talking with other um, people, I think one of the main things that has come up with is this idea, especially of like reciprocity Hmm. and in trying to when we're like engaging with and trying to talk about, you know, decolonial work and, you know, methodologies and trying to put it in. like Sonia Adelaide has a really amazing book and talks about. Uh, the way in which you can approach a kind of, like, decolonial methodology specifically within, you know, Mm archaeology. And a lot of it has to do with, like, reciprocity and giving back, um, not just being an extractive researcher. And and that has, like, sat down with, like, me and my cohort and everyone to actually talk about, well, what does reciprocity, like, look like? Mm -hmm. Like, we've talked about it, you know. Like we can we can also just talk about it, yeah. but like what is actually that kind of engagement look like beyond just having discussions, having conversations yeah. with your peers? And I think something that kind of brings us back to that, you know, master's tools, it's like we're still in the master's house and mm-hmm. something that I think I have sometimes a lot of, you know, issues with within the discipline is we're graduate students and sometimes this is like I mean even (laughs) as like a professor like you know it is difficult but as a grad student who is trying to like adhere to the rules and regulations of Mm -hmm. what this department wants I mean I do know archaeologists I've known many archaeologists to just leave because they are trying to do this kind of decolonial anti-colonial work and basically their department says you wrote this dissertation or you're almost finished no we don't accept that as your final project. Um, and so I've known people to leave in those kinds of instances Mm -hmm. and I mean, they're moving on, they've done, they're doing bigger and better things now, (laughs) which, you know, snaps for them, but it's, it's, you know, kind of talking about this going against the grain is, is that the reality in some instances that we're fighting to make these kinds of change and the institutions to like, let me stop you right there, bud. (laughs) Um, no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it's you know and we saw that kind of thing with Hurston Mm -hmm. and everything and so I think just talking about like the reality of it now and you know you know decolonial anti-colonial work you know Mm -hmm. will we ever truly decolonize anthropology you know are we're trying to you know we can talk about like decolonial as like trying to like remove um narratives that have continued to persist and then we have like anti-colonial and this comes out of a lot of uh, like uh, work that is like actively trying to challenge in these methodologies they still both mean almost the same things but I think the linguistics of it is pretty interesting to talk about but it's like are we truly ever going to decolonize anthropology will Mm. anthropology ever be a discipline that will be it's structures broken down because let's be honest, the discipline of anthropology was built on <laughs> God, just colonial, yep. some imperialism. It is built yeah. literally on studying the other. Yeah, It is people yeah. saying, I found someone else in this world who mm. looks different from me, who does things mm. different than me. I'm interested in f- just finding more things out about that mm. from a positionality of power. You know, from, oh, look at me, I have the ability to come to people, Mm. to have these conversations and to extract their knowledge, their beliefs. But then to have the audacity to not see that as knowledge, to not see that as, you know, things that are important and it's just more extractive information for someone to, you know, come through and write a book Or write a dissertation about, and then they get all of the attention Mm -hmm. based on someone else's intellectual property. Yeah, that that knowledge is, and that some people like, no, just kidding. I wrote that book. That's that's mine now. Like that's my intellectual property, Mm -hmm. but it's not. So it's like anthropology as a discipline. I feel like is always extractive. Mm. I, I don't think there's any other way around it, but in breaking down that structure that it was built upon you know what what would anthropology look like you know if if it was ever fully decolonized like can it be you know Mm. yeah
0: that's (laughs) 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 big questions that's something i i often ask myself um i don't really know what my my Ideology was, or what my mindset was, mm-hmm. really when I sort of entered anthropology, like knowing its roots or learning mm-hmm. about its roots. When I did, um, mm-hmm. it didn't really deter me away. I was like, "This is more of a reason for me to be here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, this is exactly why I need to be in this field." Um, because of who we're still talking about, right. because right. of everything, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, I don't know, I feel like, aside from this. Okay, we need to decenter whiteness, decenter the West, decenter America, and recenter like all of these other people who are mm-hmm. on the peripheries, like our good old Faye Harrison <laughs> says. <said. laughs> <laughs> the people who are like on the sidelines, on the margins. Um, I think it's another question too to ask, like why are we forcing people to choose? Like Our passions over stability. Why Why are we doing that?
1: Why does it have to be? Decolonizing,
0: right. Decolonizing anthropology or decolonized anthropology, in my mind, wouldn't Mm -hmm. ask people to choose. People would still be able to choose the things they're passionate about, sort of write in the way that they want to write, Mm -hmm. and write about these topics and study these topics in the way that they want without having to say, okay, well, I know if I write about this topic in this way, people are not going to see it as scholarly work and they're going to maybe not laugh at it, but sort of push it aside as this thing that isn't super important or isn't going to add to intellectual thought. Right. Right. As opposed to me doing this other thing where I know it's going to be amazing and people, which is still important work, but people are going to appreciate this more Mm -hmm. and consider this work scholarly and more quote unquote scientific. And yeah, I think that was another conversation we had. Like, mm-hmm. oh, people trying to make anthropology a science, science, a hard science that is built off of hypotheses and and hard scientific data and evidence, and that's why we're here now. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's okay. We can be soft. We, we can, can be in yeah. our soft anthropology can be in its soft girl era. Okay, it it, <laughs> it literally. <laughs> does not have to be hard and strong Mm-mm. all the time. Okay? Nope, she she, d- she does not. No. Anthropology can be her soft girl era and stay there. Okay? We can be a soft science. Like, that's fine. Um And I think that's where anthropology thrives. Like, right. it's the most humanistic of the sciences, mm-hmm. but it's the most scientific of the humanities. Yeah. And let, let anthropology thrive there. Let it thrive there. Let it be beautiful there. But, I don't know. Like... That's my long-winded way of saying, like, I'm not sure exactly what decolonial, decolonized anthropology right. looks like, but I feel right. like that's where, where we start. Like, stop mm-hmm. forcing people to sort of choose, choose. like, yeah. what it is that they need to follow. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah,
1: because I feel like I can only imagine the scholarship that would flourish if it wasn't so rigid mm-hmm. in what, like, mm-hmm. the institutions having you choose, because the institution basically. I mean, you can't really choose. They say you're here. This is what you have to do, (laughs) which I I understand at some point like the requirement. But but no, but it's like still Hmm. let people write the way they want, you know, talk the way they want, have these kinds of conversations in the way that they want, because, God, I really can only imagine the kind of ideas and just knowledge that's out there that isn't being talked or written about because there's still this pressure within academic institutions yeah. to p- it's published parish, but I- in in that kind of yeah. way that it has to be uh, addressed and talked mm. about in a very specific way in order for it to really, you know, you know, just be authorized. I feel right. like by <laughs> in like within
0: these yeah. kinds of spaces. Yeah. And not them just having, Oh, we have our golden children. Mhm. Mm
1: follow these examples right if if you want to get up here this is how you should act this is how you should write
0: exactly this is exactly what you should do and then
1: we're just going to be little products (laughs) of like are we really gonna have any originality after that (laughs) (laughs) if we're just coming on and doing the exact same thing you know over and over and writing in the same style it's like individuality can flourish within this kind of approach and again I feel like I agree with you that I truly don't know what it looks like but that sounds like a damn good goal Mm. you know
0: agreed I mean like I feel really lucky to like have entered anthropology in the time that I have now like you have Faye Harrison's you have the Kristen Smith's Mm -hmm. the Crystal (laughs) Spall's oh that's my advisor y'all if y'all don't know (laughs) that oprah was um <laughs> we had a bit of a, a mishap there but yeah we have the Kristen smiths the faye mm-hmm. harrisons the chris A. smalls i was just introduced recently to courtney desiree morris and alexis Pauling gums i'm not mm-hmm. sure if she's an anthropologist but it's like i'm entering a time in scholarship where you really are seeing like all of these minds and yeah. jennifer delfinos and um Dylan, yeah. I think his last name is Rodriguez. Like, mm-hmm. you, like you're like really – like, it's just – I yeah. don't know.
1: Yeah, we have Kim <laughs> TallBear, yeah. Zoe Todd, Sonia Adelaide. Yeah, it's – it's a, honestly, it's a great time to, like, I feel like be in this discipline and reading and having these conversations mm-hmm. because, again, s- people are uh, – space is being made for yeah. it, and it's kind of horrible that it's like space has to be made. Right. You know, but I'm so glad that it is now because yeah. we're able to have these conversations and these kind of people snaps to Jen. Yeah, exactly. I'm I babysitting know. her dog right now. I <laughs> 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 really love it. Snickers. Uh, <laughs> snickers snickers <laughs> is the best. Lover. <laughs> but, oh. but yeah, no, I mean, I'm so glad that we get to have like these kinds yeah, of conversations exactly. and that we're even allowed like this, the opportunity to do mm-hmm. this, you know, to have this conversation. Because I feel like some institutions, some, you know, write a paper, you know, talk about it through your lens and only, and we're able to, like, have this collaborative, like, Mm -hmm. we're able to bring, you know, an archaeological background and from, like, in English, like, the literature to anthropology, sociocultural, and to be able to sit down and, like, talk
0: about it. (sighs) So all the, I won't say complaining. Somebody got on me earlier about that. All the critiquing we've done, Mm -hmm. yes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. All the critiquing we've done of anthropology to sort of come to this conclusion that, yes, anthropology has a long way to go, but we have also come a long way from We've come a long way. Mm -hmm. And space is being made because we wouldn't be having these conversations if not, and being able to acknowledge that and still say, yep, we're making progress, but we still have a long way to go. And I think that's what gives... Yeah, that one day, if either of us decide that we're going to be professors and stay in academia, and really like be like re- reintroducing ourselves and like our mm-hmm. like the ontologies that we've sort of come from and are building right. upon the conversations that I've already been having, being able to then res- like introduce that to like future baby anthropologists. Yeah even though, well, I consider myself still a baby anthropologist. I I know, I was going
1: to say, what do you mean? (laughs) Still a baby. (laughs) Still a baby.
0: But one day being on the opposite side of that. Mm -hmm. and like,
1: I I think that's so important that our generation has, I think, is reflexivity. Mm. Is that we, I feel like, are able to always consider ourselves to be learning. And I'm not saying that the older generation isn't, but I, I just think there is something that, you know, we can continuously reflect and I hope that, you know, if we do continue to like as we move on in academia, you know, that we're still just so up to date with everything that's going on and that we're able to, you know, educate all the students because I do know that that is an issue within some disciplines, you know, and stuff especially within like other institutes of anthropology is there is that so far removed Mm -hmm. from like the current discourse and topics and like important things and issues that are occurring that You know, I just think it's so important, and I think I love that we're able to do that. I mean, Gen Z baby, right? (laughs) Gen Z. Gen Z.
0: So, yeah. Wow. I feel like that's a like a nice note. That's a nice (gasps) a nice sign off. (laughs) Um, (laughs) everyone, this was supposed to be forty five minutes long. Oh my God! Yeah, I know. When when we go back to edit, oh Lord, maybe some minutes will be uh, (laughs) cut off. Sorry to our our instructor for the course. We We
1: tried. We tried. We (laughs) hope you enjoy this (laughs) conversation,
0: (laughs) (laughs) and everybody else who's listening. Yes. Um. Yeah. So, this is Yasmin and Bella signing off and for the first time in a long time I get to say and always remember everybody keep those thoughts